Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Demythologizing Mormonism. Tonight's episode may be one of the most important episodes I have ever recorded because I have uncovered evidence that even as I speak on this day, September 17th, 2022, when I'm recording this podcast, even as I speak, the LDS Church appears to be engaged in a high-level attempt to demythologize certain aspects of its history. And by demythologize, what I mean is they are engaged in a concerted effort to delete the miraculous aspects of certain episodes in church history. I want to share with you the evidence I have for that allegation and then let you make your own decisions. I want to share with you three examples of what I'm talking about. Now, the first example is something that has been going on for a while, but it has recently come back to the surface courtesy of President Eyring. As anyone who has been a Mormon for any length of time knows, the church teaches that one of the main benefits of the restoration is that we have a prophet at the head of the church who receives revelation directly from God and then gives that revelation to the members of the church and even to the world. The prophet at the head of the church, currently President Russell M. Nelson, is likened to Moses or other ancient prophets of old and their encounters with deity and the way we read about in the Bible, they received revelation from God and gave it to the people. The classic example, of course, is Moses going up the Mount, Mount Sinai, in order to receive the Ten Commandments, which he does from God personally at the top of the mountain. And then Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments to give them to the people. But even while the church has historically taught this manner of receiving revelation for the church by the prophet, more recently, another narrative is surfacing and being bandied about and is being talked about in other venues. And we have primarily President Eyring to thank for this because a number of years ago at a press conference, he gave some off-the-cuff comments which were recorded. And in those off-the-cuff comments, he's talking about how fantastic it is to be in a room where revelation is being received by the Lord's prophets. But when he talks about it, he doesn't say that anybody received revelation, that anybody's face lit up, that Jesus appeared, or anything else miraculous. Instead, he describes what I think an objective observer would see as a rather mundane process of having a bunch of people in the same room talking about one issue and then talking about it around and around the table until finally everybody comes to the same conclusion. In other words, agreement has become the definition of revelation in the LDS church. Once all the top 15 leaders agree on something, that has now come to be, by definition, revelation. This was a number of years ago that President Eyring said this, and I have mentioned it on a prior podcast, but I want to play this audio for you right now so you can hear exactly what it is I'm talking about and compare this with the teachings of the church historically about how the prophet receives revelation. Play the tape. When I first came as the president of Ricks College, I attended my first meeting that I'd ever been in watching the general authorities of the church, the first presidency and others, running a meeting. I had been studying for the 10 years I was a professor at Stanford how you make decisions in meetings, in groups. So I got a chance. Here's my chance to see the way the Lord's servants do it, of which I now am one. But my first, I I looked at it with my Harvard-Stanford eyes, and I thought, this is the strangest 
conversation. I've, I mean, here are the prophets of God, and they're disagreeing in an openness that I had never seen in business. In business, you're, you're careful when you're with the bosses, you know. Here they were just, and I, I watched this process of them disagreeing, and I thought, good heavens. You know, I thought it, 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 revelation would come to them all, and, uh, and they'd all see things the same way in some sort of, you know. Note, it is at this point that President Eyring barely catches himself from saying that he thought something miraculous would happen, but then stops short and changes what it was he was going to say. And they'd all see things the same way in some sort of, you know, and it was more open than anything I had ever seen in all the groups I'd ever studied in business. I was just dumbfounded. But then after a while, the conversation cycled around and they began to agree. And I saw the most incredible thing, that here are these very strong, very bright people, all with different opinions. Suddenly the opinions began to just line up and I thought, I've seen a miracle. I've seen unity come out of this wonderful, open kind of exchange that I'd never seen in all my studies of government or business or anywhere else. And so I thought, oh, what a miracle. And then it was President Harold B. Lee was chairing the meeting. Uh, I think, he, anyway, it was, a, it was a Board of Education meeting. And uh, I thought, now he's going to announce the decision because I've seen this miracle. And he said, wait a minute, I think I think we'll bring this matter up again some other time. I sense there is someone in the room who is not yet settled. And they went on to the next item and I thought, that is strange. And then I watched somebody, one of the brethren, one of the, I think one of the 12, walk past President Lee and say, thank you. <laughs> There's something I didn't have a chance to say. So I want you to know, the main thing you do about Harvard and Stanford, and I love that, I hope this doesn't offend my wonderful friends, forget it. Uh, we're in another kind of thing here. Uh, uh, this is what it claims to be. This is the true church of Jesus Christ. Revelation is real, even in what you call the business kinds of settings. And uh, a great man whom I love and will always love, President Harold B. Lee, uh, taught me a great lesson that says, no, uh, we can be open, we can be direct, we can, we can talk about differences in a way that you can't anywhere else because we're all just looking for the truth. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to make our argument dominate. We just want to find what's right. And then a man sensitive enough to sense, without anybody saying anything, that somebody in the room was not settled. <laughs> and uh, again, there's a, there's a kind of... Uh, there's a kind of process of openness and yet coming together and having confidence that you know what the Lord wants, not what we want, that is, uh, I loved Harvard, I loved Stanford, had a great time there, my wife is here, we spent the first 10 years of our married life. I was a professor at Stanford, thought I'd stay there forever and had tenure and how happy we were and then went to Rexburg, Idaho from there. Uh, and. Uh, then came down here and found out that there was a kind of uh, making decisions and working together in groups that I have never seen anywhere else in the world except here. So while the church, out of one side of its mouth, 
talks about the prophet receiving revelation directly from God, and that's how revelation is received by the church, over here, out of the other side of their mouth, or at least out of President Ivering's mouth, and he does count for something because he's in the first presidency and he should know, he describes a manner of receiving revelation that is decidedly unmiraculous. In other words, the miraculous element of revelation is slowly but steadily being drained out of the church's narrative even as to how revelation is received by the prophet today. And by extension, we can also say that if this is the way revelation is received by the church today, it probably has been the way revelation has been received by the church for years past, decades past, and even over a hundred years past. The reason I bring this up is because recently, President Eyring has made another public comment, which goes along with the earlier comment that he made on the video I just played. This was in a church news release from September 9th, 2022, which was President Nelson's 98th birthday. This can be found on the church website. And right now, as I am recording this, there is a special link to this article on the main page of the church website. So apparently the reporter or whoever it is who wrote this article spoke directly with President Henry B. Eyring about his experience with President Nelson and serving as President Nelson's counselor. This is from the article, I quote directly, President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor, expressed his thoughts about President Nelson's role as the Lord's prophet. And now we get to President Eyring's quote. This is what he says, Every time we walk out of the office, and he's talking about himself and President Dallin H. Oaks, the other counselor, the first counselor in the first presidency. Once again, every time we walk out of the office, President Oaks and I say, it happened again. You'll just see revelation come. You'll see him ask for counsel. So this is President Nelson asking for counsel from his two counselors. So you'll see him ask for counsel and then the decision will come, and everybody in the room knows it is right and from God. He just quietly says, I think this is what the Lord would want us to do. And then President Eyring comments, it's just time after time. And that's the end of the quote from this news article. So once again, President Eyring is doubling down on talking about Revelation as something that is very unmiraculous. Now, it may be miraculous in his eyes. I can't speak for him, but I know that this is a very different kind of revelation than the one that I was taught the president of the church receives. And indeed, all the apostles receive. What is being described by President Eyring is simply going in to see President Nelson in his office. President Nelson asks them for counsel, and then he makes a decision. President Nelson makes a decision, and President Nelson says quietly, I think this is what the Lord would want us to do. So this is now officially and on the record what passes for revelation to the prophet in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 2022. I was thinking more about this the other night, and it occurred to me that there are two kinds of revelation in the LDS Church. There is the revelation that is taught, that is received by the president of the church, the prophet of God, and then there's personal revelation which can be received by every member of the church. Well, as I thought about it, it occurred to me that church revelation, revelation from God to the leader of the church, is now becoming defined as agreement. It's simply an agreement that is reached. It is a consensus that is arrived at 
by the leadership of the church. And by the way, that consensus is made much more easy because the prophet of God is the one who has said, this is what he thinks the Lord would do. So obviously everybody else is going to get in line with that pretty quickly. So I do not think consensus is going to be that difficult to arrive at once the president of the church has announced his opinion on a particular issue and ascribed it to what God would want us to do. I have to add parenthetically that we know from Hugh B. Brown's biography that when he was called to be in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he was given a charge, and that charge was that if the situation arose where all the top 15 leaders did not agree, but there was a majority, which there will always have to be because there are 15 of them, that's not an even number, it's going to have to come down one side or the other, unless someone abstains, but that if an apostle finds themselves in the minority on a certain position, then they are required by this apostolic charge to present to the public as if it were their position in the first place, even though it was not their position because they were in the minority. But the goal is to show an illusory front of unanimity on every issue on the part of the top leadership of the church. So as I say, that's a parenthetical comment. The main point is that revelation to the prophet, church revelation, is now being defined as simple agreement between the leaders of the church. Now, when we look at personal revelation, we know that we have been taught over and over again that we are not allowed to receive any revelation that contradicts what a leader has said. If we do, then that revelation is already suspect and must be coming from the wrong source. Therefore, the only personal revelation being allowed to members of the church is a revelation that agrees with the top leadership. So if you were to do a flow chart on this, church revelation to the prophet is now defined as agreement among the leaders. And personal revelation to the member is now defined as agreement with the leaders. Revelation to the church and to the members is simply defined as agreement. So if everybody agrees on what constitutes doctrine in the church, then everything can go along fine and there's no problem. It's when somebody doesn't agree and mentions it publicly that the problems arise. So this is just the first example that I want to bring up by way of getting into my second two examples, which I think are much more interesting and do have to do with church historical episodes. This came about because last Sunday on September 11th, 2022, the Renlands, Elder and Sister Renland, gave a youth devotional that was broadcast worldwide. And the main point of this devotional, which I watched last Sunday, was to promote the new volume of saints, the four-volume history of the church that the church has been pouring a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of time into. There will ultimately be four volumes. Two volumes have already been released. And the third volume of Saints has just been released. So this is a promotion for the third volume of Saints. And as part of that, they're going to talk about stories that are contained in this volume. I will admit that it was somewhat difficult for me to pay close attention throughout this devotional, and mainly because I do not find the Renlands, either of them actually, to be particularly engaging speakers. They're reading off a teleprompter. But when they got to the point where they were going to talk about President Snow, the fifth president of the church, Lorenzo Snow, and they talked about the story where President Snow went down to St. George because the church was in financial troubles. I think we all know the story. 
he goes down to St. George and he talks about tithing and he encourages the members to pay their tithing because they have to get out of this difficult jam the church is in financially. But there is a miraculous element to this story. And the miraculous element is that President Snow goes down to St. George. They are in the middle of a drought. They can't raise any crops. They are in trouble themselves. And President Snow promises the congregation meeting at the St. George Tabernacle that if they pay their tithing faithfully, they will have rain that season and they will yet be able to harvest their crops that season. This is a story that is told frequently in the church. It's in a lot of different church materials. And back in 1963, they even did a movie about it called The Windows of Heaven. This movie was made into a slideshow, which I showed as a missionary in Japan back in the early 1980s. Of course, it was in Japanese and we had a film strip that we used. That was the technology at the time. <laughs> and it was in Japanese, of course. But I remember the story well. And so does everybody else who's ever seen the movie or ever heard this story from any other church source. That is, until this recent volume of Saints. But before I get to that, I want to play you a clip from the 1963 movie, The Windows of Heaven, so you can hear how this is portrayed in that movie. Here is President Snow in the movie, The Windows of Heaven, from 1963. I also feel to give you a promise pertaining to your parched lands. If you people here will observe this law fully and honestly from now on, you may go ahead and plow your land, plant your seed, and I promise you in the name of the Lord that in due time clouds will gather, the latter rains from heaven will descend, your lands will be watered, the rivers and ditches will be filled, and you will yet reap a harvest this very season. And the movie goes on, and of course, after a great deal of tithe paying and a great deal of faith and a great deal of prayer, the rains do come to break the drought in August of that same year, 1899. Now, I want to emphasize that this is not just an old 1963 movie, which is about 60 years old now, and that's the only time this was ever mentioned, and it was never mentioned anywhere else. It has been repeated frequently, and in fact, the miraculous element of the story, i.e., the promise that if the saints paid their tithing faithfully, God will send rain and break the drought. This is repeated as recently as right now. It's up on the church website. It's a lesson in the Primary 5 class on Doctrine and Covenants and Church History. It's Lesson 45, Lorenzo Snow Receives a Revelation on Tithing. It describes Lorenzo Snow going down to St. George and here is what this lesson says. At the time of President Snow's visit to St. George, there had been no rain in southern Utah for months. As the church leaders traveled south, President Snow noticed the dry earth and the thirsty plants and animals. Without rain, the people in southern Utah did not know how they could grow crops to provide the food they needed to survive. This lesson then goes on to talk about President Snow addressing the conference in St. George on May 17, 1899. That's an important date. 
This lesson then goes on to say, President Snow told the saints that the Lord was displeased with them because they had not been paying their tithing. He promised the people that if they paid their tithing, rain would fall and they would be able to plant and harvest good crops. Finally, this primary lesson, still available on the church website as of today's date, concludes, President Snow anxiously waited for the weather reports from southern Utah because he'd gone back to Salt Lake. One month passed, then two months, but no rain came. The people in St. George were not only paying a full tithe, but were giving even more as offerings to the Lord. The prophet prayed more earnestly that the Lord would bless the people. He had promised them rain if they would pay their tithing. Finally, on August 2nd, 1899, that's the same year, it's a few months later after the address on May 17th, 1899, and the promise that President Snow made at that address on May 17th, 1899. Finally, on August 2nd, 1899, he received a telegram that read, Rain in St. George. The saints were blessed and were able to harvest their crops that fall. That concludes the primary lesson currently available on the church website. I imagine there are multiple other instances of this story being told in other correlated manuals on the church website. I'm giving this as an illustrative example. Now that's what the church talks about, but over here on the academic side of things, there has been for some time a rather persuasive debunking of the miraculous elements of that story. And that occurs in an article titled, Reexamining Lorenzo Snow's 1899 Tithing Revelation. It's written by Dennis B. Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and published in Mormon Historical Studies, the beginning on page 143. I'm now gonna quote a paragraph from this paper. According to a major subplot, this is from the paper, according to a major subplot in the widely seen BYU-produced movie, The Windows of Heaven, what I just played a clip from, during his May 1899 visit to St. George, President Snow also prophesied that if those present would from that day onward faithfully pay a full and honest tithing, the Lord would open the literal windows of heaven send down rain upon the dry, drought-stricken soil of southern Utah, the rivers and ditches would be filled, and the St. George Saints would yet reap a bounteous harvest that very year. The justification for such a dramatic promise or prophecy is found in a few articles written some 35 to 40 years later by Leroy Snow, about President Snow's St. George visit. Now that may be Leroy, it may be Leroy, I'm not sure, it's spelled capital L-E, capital R-O-I, but this story is not mentioned any time by President Snow from his own mouth in a contemporaneously recorded document. It's not mentioned by anybody else at the time, and it's not until 35 to 40 years later that Leroy Snow, or Leroy Snow, finally writes it down. Now, who is Leroy Snow? He is the favored son of Lorenzo Snow's last plural wife, Minnie. So this is the son of Lorenzo Snow, and apparently a favored son of Lorenzo Snow. So in addition to the problem that this story first appears only some 35 to 40 years later by President Snow's son, Leroy, this article goes on to show why that is likely not accurate. However, the article goes on, however, contemporary records do not corroborate any such utterance by President Snow. In other words, if President Snow actually said that in the conference 
at St. George in 1899, you think somebody would have written it down because it is so dramatic, but nobody did, which is a big indication that it probably did not happen. On top of that, the article goes on with this piece of important evidence. The 1899 year-end harvest was very poor, and the locals sustained heavy livestock losses. So it doesn't sound like there was a lot of rain that saved their bacon in 1899 in August, as the story goes. Furthermore, the article concludes, furthermore, although it rained intermittently in southern Utah for the next few years, it was not until 1902 that enough precipitation discernibly fell to break the drought. So this story is problematic, not only in the fact that it doesn't appear until 35 to 40 years later for the first time, that it's not reflected in any contemporary accounts, it's also problematic in the fact that the drought did not break that year as the story told by Leroy Snow goes. Instead, it took three more years for the drought to break. It would seem clear then to even the most amateur historian that the miraculous element of this story probably did not happen. And that is why... That is why when I was listening to the youth devotional by the Renlands last Sunday, I was surprised when they got to this story. They told this story about President Snow. And listen very closely and see if you can hear what I heard. Or more specifically, if you don't hear what I didn't hear. Tell me if you can hear about this miraculous element in the story as it is being told by the Renlands at the Youth Devotional. Play the tape. Sometimes revelation comes in the moment. This happened with another example of the ongoing restoration when Lorenzo Snow was the president of the church. In 1898, the church was in a difficult financial condition. At the height of its anti-polygamy campaign, the United States Congress had authorized the confiscation of church property. Worried the government would seize their donations, many saints stopped paying tithing, greatly reducing the church's main source of funding. The church borrowed money to provide enough funds to keep the Lord's work moving forward. The church even took out loans to cover the cost of finishing the Salt Lake Temple. This financial situation weighed heavily on the 85-year-old prophet's mind. One morning early in May, President Snow was sitting in bed when his son Leroy came into the room. The prophet greeted him and announced, I am going to St. George. Leroy was surprised. St. George was 300 miles away. To get there, they had to take the train over 200 miles south to Milford, then travel another 105 miles by carriage. This would be a difficult journey for an old man. Nevertheless, they undertook the long demanding trip. When they arrived, dusty and weary, a stake president asked why they had come. Well, President Snow said, I don't know what we've come to St. George for. Only the Spirit told us to come. The next day, May 17, the prophet met with members in the St. George Tabernacle, a red sandstone building several blocks northwest of the temple. When President Snow stood to address the saints, he said, We can scarcely express the reason why we came, yet I presume the Lord will have somewhat to say to us. During this sermon, 
President Snow paused unexpectedly, and the room went utterly still. His eyes brightened and his countenance shone. When he opened his mouth, his voice was stronger. The inspiration of God seemed to fill the room. He then spoke on tithing. He lamented that many saints were reluctant to pay a full tithing. This is an essential preparation for Zion, he said. The next afternoon, President Snow taught, the time has now come for every Latter-day Saint who calculates to be prepared for the future and to hold his feet strong upon a proper foundation to go and do the will of the Lord and to pay his tithing in full. That is the word of the Lord to you, and it will be the word of the Lord to every settlement throughout the land of Zion. President Snow later taught, we're in a fearful condition, and because of it, the church is in bondage. The only relief is for the saints to observe this law. He challenged members to obey the law fully and promised the Lord would bless them for their efforts. He also declared that tithe paying would now be a firm requirement for temple attendance. Since that time, many can testify that the Lord does pour out His richest blessings on those who are willing to obey this simple law. Well, when I heard the Rinlands recite the story without the miracle that I know has been there every time I've heard it all the way back to Japan when I'm showing that film strip of the windows of heaven, I was curious. Why did they leave out the miraculous element? Was it an oversight on their part? That seemed unlikely. So I went online to the church's website and I pulled up the most recent volume of Saints, Volume 3. I found the chapter in which this story is retold. And here is the amazing thing. The church, in its official history, in retelling this story with President Snow, has completely removed the miraculous element from it. I'm going to read to you the story as it appears in Saints. You can go on the website and follow along and keep me honest and make sure that I'm reading it correctly, which I assure you, I will. This is a little bit lengthy, so I'll try and read it with feeling and quickly. One morning, early in May, President Snow was sitting in bed when his son, Leroy, came into the room. Leroy had just returned from a mission to Germany and was working as his father's personal secretary. Yeah, you can see he's a favored son, can't you? The prophet greeted him and announced, I am going to St. George. Leroy was surprised. St. George was in the southwestern corner of the state, 300 miles away. To get there, they had to take the train as far south as it would go, then travel the rest of the way by carriage. It would be a long, demanding trip for an 85-year-old man. They left later that month, traveling with several friends and church leaders. When they arrived in St. George, dusty and weary from the journey, they went to the home of stake president Daniel MacArthur, where they were to stay the night. Curious, the stake president asked why they had come. Well, President Snow said, I don't know what we've come to St. George for. Only the Spirit told us to come. The next day, May 17th, remember that date, May 17th, 1899, the prophet met with the saints in the St. George Tabernacle, a red sandstone building several blocks northwest of the temple. He had been restless the night before, but he looked strong and alert as he waited for the meeting to begin. He was the first speaker. I mean, he's the prophet. He was the first speaker, and when he stood to address the saints, his voice was clear. We can scarcely express the reason why we came, he said, yet I presume the Lord will have something to say to us. 
He had not been to St. George in 13 years, and he spoke of how pleased he was to see the saints in town placing the kingdom of God over the pursuit of wealth. He urged them to listen to the voice of the Spirit and heed his words. So this is President Snow now addressing the saints. To go to heaven, we must first learn to obey the laws of heaven, he told them, and we shall approach God's kingdom just as fast as we learn to obey his laws. During the sermon, President Snow paused unexpectedly, and the room went utterly still. His eyes brightened, and his countenance shone. When he opened his mouth, his voice was stronger. The inspiration of God seemed to fill the room. He then spoke on tithing. Most of the saints in St. George were full tithe payers, and the prophet acknowledged their faithfulness. He also noted that the poor were the most generous tithe payers, but he lamented that many other saints were reluctant to pay a full tithing, even though the recent financial crisis had ended and the economy was improving. Well, what about the drought? Aren't they in trouble because of the drought? Strange, there's no mention of the drought. They say the economy was improving. He wanted all saints to observe the principle strictly. This is an essential preparation for Zion, he said. The next afternoon, President Snow spoke again at the tabernacle. The time has now come, he announced to the congregation for every Latter-day Saint who calculates to be prepared for the future and to hold his feet strong upon a proper foundation to go and do the will of the Lord and to pay his tithing in full. That is the word of the Lord to you, and it will be the word of the Lord to every settlement throughout the land of Zion. Period. End of quote from President Snow. End of story about President Snow in St. George. It does go on to talk about his return trip to Salt Lake, and I want to be completely fair here and give them every opportunity to talk about the drought and President Snow's promise that the drought would be ended if they paid their tithing, and that in fact, in August of that year, they did receive rain that broke the drought and they were able to harvest their crops, but it's nowhere to be found. I'll read this last paragraph. On his return trip to Salt Lake City, President Snow stopped in villages and towns along the way to testify of the Lord's revealed will. We have been educated in the law of tithing for 61 years, but have not yet learned to observe it, he told the saints in one town. We are in a fearful condition, and because of it, the church is in bondage. The only relief is for the saints to observe this law. He challenged them to obey the law fully and promised the Lord would bless them for their efforts. He also declared that tithe paying would now be a firm requirement for temple attendance. Now, you can read the rest of that story yourself, but the bottom line is, there's no mention of any drought in St. George. There is no mention of any promise by President Snow to the people in St. George that if they paid their tithing, the rains would come and they would be able to harvest their crops that season. And there is no mention of the rain coming or the telegram coming to President Snow saying, rain in St. George. There is simply no mention of the drought. There's no mention of the promise. There's no mention of the fulfillment of that promise. There's no mention of the rain. There's no mention of the crops being harvested at the end of the season. What the LDS Church has now done in an official capacity is remove the miraculous element from this story. I looked through all the footnotes. There is no reference to it in the footnotes either. But what there is a reference to is that the source for almost all their information of what happened during this meeting is, guess who? Leroy Snow. He's the one who wrote about it on multiple occasions. So there can be no excuse for the historian's office that they don't know about the existence of this story and it was an oversight that they didn't include it. 
they were looking at the source documents that contain this remarkable promise by the same author, Leroy Snow, from the 1930s. So what I see happening is that the historian's office is actually acting more like a historian's office. They are taking a story which is on very shaky historical footing. In fact, any unbiased historian looking at this would say this was a late edition. It probably never happened. It should not be included in a history. And in following those principles, they have removed this miraculous story from the official new church history, Saints, Volume 3. Now, I think this is a good thing insofar as it goes that the historians are removing miraculous elements from the history of the church that are not on a firm historical footing. But I don't think they go far enough. I think they did half of their job. The other half, however, and the problem I have with it is, number one, that they don't state in the history that some had said that this miraculous event happened, but actually it doesn't look like it really happened, and that's why we're not including it here. That's not even in a footnote that I saw. The other problem is that the story, with all of its miraculous elements, appears on the church website in other venues, like the primary lesson that I read to you. So what the church is now doing is they are telling this same story one, in the saints book without this miraculous element, and two, in other documents that are officially approved and available on the church website that do include the miraculous element of this story. They are telling both stories at the same time in different publications, with apparently the goal of allowing people who've already heard the story to continue to believe the story and people who are just reading saints to not be exposed to the story unless they look at these other documents, and slowly but surely demythologizing over the course of time this story in Mormon history. By the way, I also want to add that Leroy Snow appears to be basically the sole source for all of the elements of this story. So in other words, it's not very impressive that President Snow says, I don't know why we're going to St. George, but God wants us to go. And then he's up there talking and then he stops and then he gets this glowing look on his face and his eyes sparkle. And then he says, oh, now I know what God wants us to do. You have to pay your tithing. Those are very, very minor miraculous elements to the story. But even those minor miraculous elements of the story come from the same source, Leroy Snow. And Leroy Snow is the same source for the overtly miraculous elements of the story that they have now decided to delete from the official narrative in the church history. All I'm suggesting is, if we can't trust Leroy Snow to get the major miraculous elements right, why are we trusting him for even the minor miraculous elements of the story? And finally, in the official narrative, the official history in Saints, they also give away the farm as to why it was that the Saints started to pay their tithing. It wasn't because of a promise that the drought would stop. It was because... And I'll quote now from the official narrative. He, President Snow, also declared that tithe paying would now be a firm requirement for temple attendance. That's the reason the saints started paying their tithing more because they had to pay tithing now in order to go to the temple. Prior to this, you didn't have to be a full tithe payer to go to the temple. It wasn't one of the temple recommend questions. But Lorenzo Snow is the person who made it a requirement to go to the temple. And so I would expect that that kind of coercion may be too strong a term for it. Let's just call it a condition would definitely increase the number of full tithe payers for those who wanted to attend the temple. And remember, it was President Woodruff, the fourth president of the church 
church immediately before President Snow, who had changed things so that we're not doing the law of adoption anymore. Instead, you need to be sealed to your own ancestors as far back as you can go. And if you don't do that, then they're kind of hanging in the wind and they don't have salvation. They don't have exaltation. So in a spiritual sense, what this does is it holds a faithful Mormon's ancestors as hostage. Their exaltation can only be assured by doing the temple work for them, and their temple work can only be done for them by paying a full tithing. In this way, I see it as a ransom of sorts that was forced upon the saints by President Snow. So I am not surprised that their tithing increased, and nothing miraculous was necessary in order to get it to happen. So that is the second example of the demythologizing of church history that I am putting forward and I think I've done a good job of proving that in the new church history, Saints Volume 3, the church is intentionally demythologizing this story because they have recognized that it rests on a very shaky historical footing. Now for the third example, because I stumbled on the third example when I was looking for the second example. You remember I said that I listened to the Renlands talk about the tithing story with President Snow with no miraculous elements and that is indeed missing in the official church history as well. But as I was looking for that story in Saints Volume 3 on the church website, I stumbled upon another story in the same chapter. And this is another famous story. And it also involves President Snow. And it has a decidedly miraculous element to it. This is a story where President Snow saw Jesus Christ in the Salt Lake Temple. I'm going to go ahead and read to you a very typical recitation of this story. This is from the 1993 Friend magazine, the August edition, in an article titled Lorenzo Snow and the Sacred Vision by Susan Arrington Madsen. Now, the sacred vision is the vision of Jesus. I'll read through this quickly, too. I think you're probably familiar with the story. I know I was. Lorenzo Snow was still at work in his office in the Salt Lake Temple. It was dark outside and the stars had come out. He was the fifth president of the church, but he was also serving as the first president of the Salt Lake Temple at the time. He often stayed late into the evening to finish his work. President Snow's granddaughter, Allie Young, loved to visit him at his office. In those days, family members of the temple president were allowed to visit him there. They were not allowed to go through the entire temple, however, until they were old enough and had been found worthy and ready to make the sacred temple covenants. Okay, we got it. Going on with the story. This special evening, Allie was with her grandfather in his office. The doorkeepers had gone home and the night watchmen had not yet come. So they were all alone. When Allie was ready to leave, President Snow went to a dresser and took a large bunch of keys from the drawer so that he could let her out the main entrance. Together they walked down a large corridor near the celestial room. President Snow suddenly stopped and said, Wait a moment, Allie. I want to tell you something. Allie listened intently as her grandfather told her of an unforgettable experience he had once had at that place in the temple. Quote, it was right here that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me at the time of the death of President Woodruff. He instructed me to go right ahead and reorganize the first presidency of the church at once and not wait as had been done after the death of the previous presidents and that I was to succeed President Woodruff as president of the church. This article goes on. President Snow held out his left hand and said, he stood right here about three feet above the floor. He looked as though he stood on a plate of solid gold. Still speaking in hushed, reverent tones, President Snow told Allie that the Savior's appearance was so glorious and bright that he could hardly look at him. 
President Snow put his right hand on Allie's head and said, Now, granddaughter, I want you to remember that this is the testimony of your grandfather that he told you with his own lips that he actually saw the Savior here in the temple and talked with him face to face. Ali listened to every word of the sacred experience and never forgot that precious moment, but shared it many times later in her life with her family and friends. So that's the end of that article from the August 1993 Friend magazine. Now, for those of you who don't know, Friend is a magazine that was designed for the children of the church. But more recently, in September of 2015, the same story was once again told, this time in the Enzyme magazine from September in an article titled, A Visit from the Savior. This is the whole point of the story. This is why this is so huge in LDS history, because we have an absolute dearth after the time of Joseph Smith of anybody saying that they saw Jesus. In fact, we have a counterexample of President Grant saying that he doesn't even know anybody who even claims to have seen Jesus. So we've got Lorenzo Snow here. This is what we're going to hang our hat on. The prophet subsequent to Joseph Smith, even though it's 100 years ago, but still, they have seen Jesus. So this is why this is such an important story in church history. Once again, going to this article from September of 2015 in the Enzyme, A Visit from the Savior. Now, the first thing we note in this Enzyme article is the introductory comment. It says, this is from an experience of my father's. In other words, it's from an article titled, An Experience of My Father's. It was originally published in the Improvement Era in September of 1933. And then an editor's note where we find out who is the source of this story. It's not Allie, the granddaughter. No, it's Leroy, the son. Here's what the editor's note says. The following account was shared by Leroy C. Snow, the son of President Lorenzo Snow. Brother Snow, and when they say Brother Snow, they're talking about Leroy. Brother Snow tells how, at age 85, his father, President Snow, was concerned he would be asked to succeed President Wilfred Woodruff, who was ailing as president of the church. Following President Woodruff's death on September 2, 1898, President Snow knelt at an altar in the Salt Lake Temple and pleaded with the Lord for guidance. So now we find out that this is actually an account that is from an article from 1933 that was written by Leroy Snow, which would be 35 years after the date that this is said to have happened. And this is what this article says. After finishing his prayer, my father expected a reply, some special manifestation from the Lord. So he waited and waited and waited. There was no reply, no voice, no visitation, no manifestation. He left the altar and the room in great disappointment. Passing through the celestial room and out into the large corridor, a glorious manifestation was given President Snow, which I relate in the words of his granddaughter, Allie Young Pond. So here's Leroy talking about this incident, which he did not get apparently from his father directly even, but he got it from President Snow's granddaughter, Allie. This is who he's quoting in this story. And now we have this passage from what Allie said happened that we've already encountered in the previous article. One evening while I was visiting Grandpa Snow in his room in the Salt Lake Temple, I remained until the doorkeepers had gone and the night watchman had not yet come in, so Grandpa said he would take me to the main front entrance and let me out that way. After we left his room and while we were still in the large corridor leading into the celestial room, I was walking several steps ahead of Grandpa when he stopped me and said, Wait a moment, Allie. I want to tell you something. 
It was right here that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me at the time of the death of President Woodruff. He instructed me to go right ahead and reorganize the first presidency of the church because, of course, that's really important and it requires a direct visitation with Jesus coming down from the courts of glory to pass along the message. But regardless, he instructed me to go right ahead and reorganize the first presidency of the church at once and not wait as had been done after the death of the previous presidents and that I was to succeed President Woodruff. Then Grandpa came a step nearer and held out his left hand and said, He stood right here, about three feet above the floor. It looked as though he stood on a plate of solid gold. Grandpa told what a glorious personage the Savior is and described his hands, feet, countenance, and beautiful white robes, all of which were of such a glory of whiteness and brightness that he could hardly gaze upon him. Then he came another step nearer and put his right hand on my head and said, Now, Granddaughter, I want you to remember that this is the testimony of your grandfather, that he told you with his own lips that he actually saw the Savior here in the temple and talked with him face to face. So now we're beginning to see additional problems with this story, which have been noted before by historians. Once again, this story of Jesus appearing to President Snow is never told by President Snow in any kind of public discourse ever. There is no mention by anybody else in the apostles or anybody else that he might have told contemporaneously with the event who wrote it down. There is nothing. The first time it shows up, to my knowledge, in print is 35 years later in an article written by Leroy Snow, who, as we have seen before, is not necessarily a reliable source when it comes to miraculous elements in church history, especially relating to his father, President Snow. But this story is not even something that Leroy Snow claims to have heard from his father. Instead, he heard it from Allie, President Snow's granddaughter, at least allegedly. So it's not something that's coming directly from President Snow. It's not coming from any contemporaneously recorded account of what President Snow said. It's not coming from Leroy saying he heard his dad say it, and we know that that would be problematic anyway based on Leroy's track record. Instead, Leroy is saying not that he heard his dad say it, but that he heard his granddaughter, President Snow's granddaughter, Allie, say it to Leroy. That is the entire historic basis for this miraculous story of Jesus appearing to President Snow in the Salt Lake Temple. And as you can guess by now, that is a very shaky historical basis for this story. All right, now that I've established that this story has been told repeatedly in official LDS publications over the course of almost 100 years now, suddenly we get to the newly released Volume 3 of Saints, where the same story is recounted, only something is left out. And if you guessed that that something that's left out is Jesus, you go to the head of the class. Here is the same story as it is written in the new church history. And by the way, if any of you are having trouble finding this chapter, it's volume three of Saints, it's chapter five, it's titled An Essential Preparation. That's where both of these stories are recounted in very non-miraculous ways. Lorenzo Snow was at his home in northern Utah when he learned of the prophet's passing. That would be Wilfred Woodruff's passing. He immediately caught a train for Salt Lake City, anxious about the future. As the senior apostle, he knew he would likely become the next president of the church. Likely? Yeah, I'd say it was kind of in the bag. Regardless, going on. Six years earlier, in fact, President Woodruff had spoken to Lorenzo about the Lord's will for him as the next prophet. When I go, I want you, Brother Snow, not to delay, but organize the first presidency, he had said. Take George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith for your counselors. They are good, wise, and men of experience. 
But Lorenzo was worried about taking on the office, especially when he thought about the state of church finances. Despite the efforts of Heber J. Grant and others, the church was still mired in debt. See, this is a story leading into the St. George story, which is supposed to transpire the following year. And some people were speculating that it owed, the church owed, at least a million dollars to creditors. Lorenzo himself feared the debt was as high as three million. Wow, things have really changed since then. In the days following President Woodruff's death, Lorenzo directed church business as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, yet he felt deeply inadequate. On September 9th, the day after the funeral, Lorenzo met with the Twelve. Still feeling unequal to the calling, he proposed stepping down as president of the Quorum. The Apostles, however, voted to continue sustaining him as their leader. Now listen closely. One evening, around this time, Lorenzo sought the will of the Lord in the Salt Lake Temple, this is the story, right, where he's praying at the altar. He felt depressed and discouraged about his new responsibilities. After changing into his temple clothing, he pleaded with the Lord to enlighten his mind. The Lord answered his prayer, clearly manifesting that Lorenzo needed to follow President Woodruff's counsel to reorganize the first presidency immediately. George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith were to be his counselors. Lorenzo did not tell his fellow apostles about his revelation. Okay, let's stop here for a second. We have just had the story told to us about a revelation received by Lorenzo Snow when he was praying in the Salt Lake Temple. The history omits any mention of Jesus appearing to him. And in fact, in this last line that I just read, shows why it is they're omitting it because he never told anybody about it. He never mentioned it to anybody that Jesus appeared to him. Once again, it says, Lorenzo did not tell his fellow apostles about his revelation. Instead, he waited, hoping they would receive the same spiritual witness about what to do. The quorum met again on September 13th to discuss church finances. With President Woodruff gone, the church no longer had a trustee in trust to handle its temporal business. The apostles knew this responsibility would eventually fall on the next church president, but the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles had always waited more than a year before organizing a new first presidency. For the time being, they needed to authorize someone to carry out church business until the saints sustained a new president. As the apostles discussed solutions to the problem, Heber J. Grant and Francis Lyman, two of the apostles, suggested simply organizing a new first presidency. If the Lord should manifest to you, presidents know, that it was the proper thing to do now, Francis said, I am prepared to not only vote for a trustee in trust, but for the president of the church. The other apostles embraced the idea quickly. Joseph F. Smith proposed that they appoint Lorenzo as the new president, and everyone sustained the motion. It is for me to do the very best I can and depend upon the Lord, Lorenzo said. He then told the apostles about the revelation he received in the temple, in which he says absolutely nothing about Jesus, remember. He then told the apostles about the revelation he received in the temple. I have not mentioned this matter to any person, either man or woman, he said. I wanted to see if the same spirit which the Lord manifested to me was in you. Now that the apostles had received the witness, Lorenzo was ready to accept the Lord's call to serve as the next president of the church, period. End of that story in the New Saints volume of church history. So now in this third example, once again, we can see that the church is engaged in a concerted effort to demythologize some of its most famous and important miraculous stories, including the story about Jesus appearing to Lorenzo Snow in the Salt Lake Temple. That is now gone on the scrap heap 
I've looked at all the footnotes to this article in the New Church History, and none of them reference the appearance of Jesus to Lorenzo Snow. So that is my third example of the way in which the church is currently working hard to demythologize certain aspects of its history. In this last example, we can see that once again, it was on very shaky historical footing. The historians decided, with approval from top leadership, obviously, to remove that aspect of the story from the history and to publish it without any appearance of Jesus to Lorenzo Snow. And once again, as with the tithing story, these same stories are still available on the church website in different publications with the miraculous element to them. I read the article from The Friend magazine in 1993. I read the article from The Enzyme magazine in 2015. That's just seven years ago for crying out loud. And once again, the church is telling competing versions of the story on its own website, one with the miracle and one without the miracle. So as I said at the top, I think this is a very important episode of Radio Free Mormon because this Saints Volume 3 is newly published. I have not heard anybody else talking about the demythologizing that is going on in this new church history. And I will tell you, I have not read the entire book. I have read that chapter, and these two examples leapt out at me, and I wanted to share them with you. Now, these two stories, the story about the tithing and the drought, and the story about Jesus appearing to Lorenzo Snow in the temple, are both on shaky historical footing, and therefore, I believe, therefore have been demythologized in the new church history. There are other miraculous stories in church history that similarly rest upon an equally shaky historical footing. Stories about the first vision, stories about the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, stories about the translation of the Book of Mormon, stories about the translation of the Book of Abraham. And in speaking about the translation projects of Joseph Smith, the church is definitely starting to signal a shift in the way they're portraying those projects. They're not talking so much about translations anymore like they did when I joined the church and like they have done for the past hundred years and more. Instead, they are starting to talk about the translation projects as revelation because evidence is mounting that these were not translations, not in the ordinary usage of that term and the way that Joseph Smith used the word translation when he was describing what it was he was doing. Now these translations are becoming referred to by the church as revelations and that signals another demythologizing of the church history. When it comes to the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood and the first vision, my thought is that even though the basis for those events is also on historically shaky foundations, the church cannot possibly demythologize those stories without divesting themselves completely of any basis to believe that they are actually a restoration by divine messengers of the Savior's church in these last days. So I don't expect the church is going to go there, but it does raise the question, if you're going to demythologize these stories because the evidence isn't there to support them, why aren't you going to demythologize these other foundational stories for the same reason? Well, that's about all for tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have enjoyed presenting it to you. Please let me know your thoughts on this subject in the comments section below. If you like what you're hearing here at Radio Free Mormon, 
please take the time to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website and make a contribution, a donation. You can make a one-time donation. You can make a monthly donation. Frankly, I prefer monthly donations, even of a small amount, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will keep and are keeping Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. That is about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon. Signing off the air.